Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is your host, Molly Rowan Leach, and please join us as we are live every week on Restorative Justice on the Rise. When we're not live, we offer great podcasts and archives, and we hope you'll check us out at restorativejusticeontherise.com. We're pleased to present this audio archive and podcast from our dialogue with Katie Hutchison, who is an international restorative justice advocate, author, and whose TED Talk has been viewed over 25,000 times. You can find out more about Katie at katiehutchisonpresents.com. We were pleased to host her, and we find that our dialogue with her was extraordinarily deep, uh, informative, and offered insights into the process that is involved when the unthinkable occurs. Enjoy this conversation with Katie Hutchison, and see you in the near future on Restorative Justice on the Rise. Good evening, everyone, and such a warm welcome to all of you, wherever it is that you're connecting in from across the United States and Canada, which is typically the live listener participant base that that joins us every time we get together. And of course, this is Restorative Justice on the Rise. I'm your host, Molly Rowan Leach. We hope that you find this uh, useful interactive forum for dialogue, tools, education, advocacy, and for movement building surrounding restorative justice as well as beyond. Every now and then we throw in a dialogue session with someone who's in a related field, perhaps not particular to restorative justice, but in peace building, in um, inspired media, and otherwise. So. Um, we're going to be mixing more of that in as we go, but certainly the focus for the most part here on restorative justice on the rise is, is justice and the extraordinary transformation that we are in right now within the United States and of course beyond. And there's many places that are informing it from our world. Before going into introducing, and of course probably many of you know our very special guest tonight, I'd like to just say a few words and also um, about the series, about how to access the podcast, to thank our co-sponsors, and also then to invite Dan Kahn, the National Field Director of the Peace Alliance, to come on for a moment to share a few words with you about action teams that are forming across the country. So first of all, I'd like to thank the Peace Alliance as a co-sponsor of Restorative Justice on the Rise and also acknowledge that recently an anonymous donor, Private Foundation, has granted the series $25,000 in order to upgrade and improve what we would consider to be our tools and our resources especially in order to widen the circle of awareness around restorative justice and help support you, many of you working so committed uh, each day in this field. Um, to improving awareness and education and connecting the dots in your communities surrounding restorative justice. So uh, I've said this many times this summer on the series, but I really mean it. We are developing a great new site and it's getting close to being ready. We hope that that will happen by the beginning of the fall, if not before. So just wanting to acknowledge and thank all of you, not just the people who are providing financial support, but probably more even uh, importantly, you, the participant, who are dialoguing with us and speaking about these important issues 
in an unbiased, free conversation, which we hope is somewhat of a model of a real live dialogue in a real room together in person. So I'd like to just invite you to um, say hello to Dan Kahn for a moment from the Peace Alliance. He's the National Field Director, and there's some great things brewing around action teams. Dan, welcome. Thanks, Molly. Uh, thanks so much for inviting me to share a little bit, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. I, I really appreciate this space. I, I love to be connected with folks that are caring about restorative practices. Um, it's really a special um, sort of climate for me to be in. Uh, I love it. Um, so let me just say a few words um, about the Peace Alliance and our action teams. The Peace Alliance is a national grassroots advocacy network, uh, some 55,000 people strong, mostly around the U.S., and we advocate for peace-building tools that work. And one of the specific peace-building tools that we focus on is restorative practices, restorative justice. Um, we do this through advocating for legislation and policy that would create breakthroughs in peace-building tools. And we also work with media, professional media in local areas um, and national media, as well as highlighting the best examples that we can find of effective peace-building practices. Um, most of the way we do this is through coordinating local action teams. Peace Alliance action teams are four to 12 people that come together once a month, take a monthly action, and develop relationships with Congress and the media to create political will to make these peace building tools more available. So if you're interested in learning more about this, please visit our website, peacealliance.org. You're also welcome to drop me a line, dan at peacealliance.org, if you may be interested in forming an action team or finding out if there's one active near you. So thanks again for your participation and interest, and thanks again, Molly, for hosting this wonderful resource. Mm, thank you so much, Dan. It's my pleasure and honor to work with you as well. So tonight, without further ado, um, our very special guest, many of you, I'm sure, must know, she has... Uh, a powerfully moving TED Talk, TEDx Talk from West Vancouver that um, has seen, I think, over 25,000 views and has international recognition. Um, she's written a book called Walking After Midnight. And of course, I'm talking about Katie Hutchison, who is an international restorative justice advocate, author, and speaker. She resides in Victoria, British Columbia. She's very busy sharing her experiences and helping educate about restorative justice practices as well as converse, as we will tonight with her. She moved to, that, um, to Vancouver Island 16 years ago following the murder of her husband at the time, Bob McIntosh, in the course of dealing with the legal issues surrounding Bob's death. She met and married lawyer Michael Hutchison. So after Bob's murder, which was on New Year's Eve, 1997-98, Katie waited for five years while the police worked tirelessly to obtain the evidence to prosecute and convict his killers. So I'm going to stop right there. Um, that's from her bio, of course, but I want to hear from her live here in just a moment. And then I want to point you to um, also the fact that there's a very powerful Lifetime Network movie called Bond of Silence that features Katie's story. And of course, in, in the process of, of preparing for tonight and this conversation, I had the opportunity to 
see um, the TEDx talk, read part of the book, as well as see this entire film. And it is just an incredibly extraordinary story. And what a gift that you are providing, Katie, back to this world out of your own experience. Such a warm and heartfelt welcome to you tonight, Katie Hutchison. Thank you, Molly. It means so much to be here. So, Katie, why don't we start out with the infamous question that actually we <laughs> talked about in the green room, because that kind of leads into what we normally do at the top of our, our dialogue time together, and that's talk about what got us into restorative justice. And you said something quite poignant, and you, know, you and I can both relate. We didn't choose the field of restorative justice. It chose us. So could you, could you start out with that, please? Uh, I always refer back to a, a panel discussion that I sat on at an international restorative justice conference in Vancouver, British Columbia, and I was seated with Judge Barry Stewart, who is a you know, preeminent expert in the field, and um, David Gustafson, who is um, one of the, one of the uh, certainly grandfathers of, of restorative practices in Canada, and um, they were using the analogy of uh, the sort of confluence of waters of the different fields and streams of, of restorative practice coming together into one body of water. And, and I had to, you know, it was my turn to speak, I had to point out that I did not choose to, to be in this body of water. I didn't select it as a course of study. It was not a calling or a passion um, academically that became something I practiced. Um, I was pushed off a cliff into the deep end. And I think, uh, you know, I made my point with the people in the room um, that, that like you, Molly, some of us don't choose this. It chooses us um, nevertheless. Um, I feel honored to have found a place and a voice um, in something that speaks so clearly to me about creating and sustaining safe community and about peace building in the global sense. Mm. Now, I would so concur with you too on that point of, um, although it wasn't something that I chose as well, it's such an honor and, and I would re-choose it at, at any day. And in fact, um, I feel like it's certainly something that makes more sense than anything else um, and is nothing new <laughs> to boot. Um, no, it's nothing new and it's, it's finding a way to speak about it um, with, you know, communities to get them to realize that it isn't anything new, that we're not, we're not creating something different, we're not reinventing anything, we're just coming back to our most human roots and the way we do best, which is, you know, in our tribes, in our communities, shoulder to shoulder, in circle. So why, why don't we go back, if, if you wouldn't mind, to that night. Um, for those who are with us in the circle tonight, most probably know the story, but for those who may not, if you could share what threw you in to this, this journey, this place, certainly. Yes. New Year's <coughs> Eve, 1997, I was living in a small community outside of Vancouver, British Columbia, um, on the road towards Whistler, which is the um, large ski community home of the Olympics. I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with Whistler. I was living in a small community called Squamish, 
with my husband Bob. Um, we had four-year-old twins, very involved in our local community. Bob was practicing law and uh, racing all over the world as a triathlete, and I was happily working in local economic development, working with young entrepreneurs who were starting up small businesses in an area that was shifting away from resource-based industry into um, cleaner, uh, sort of more interesting, diverse uh, forms of um, commerce. And um, on New Year's Eve, we were gathered with a very small group of friends, and we were made aware that a house party was going on down at the end of our street at the home of a vacationing neighbor. And this neighbor was actually uh, our closest friend in this community. And he had just remarried, and he and his new wife were vacationing in Mexico. And while they were gone, his teenage son decided to have a New Year's party. So when my husband Bob was made aware of this, he wanted to quickly just call the house to make sure that this young man had things under control and was unable, unfortunately, to reach the young man, spoke to somebody else at the party, and then was concerned um, about what, what might be happening, so ventured down the end of the street with, with two male friends and interrupted a party with 200 young people that was clearly um, very out of control. And in the process of um, checking to see if the master bedroom was secure and, and uh, not being uh, used, encountered a, a group of about um, seven or 10 young people and Bob was put on the ground by a punch to the head by one of the young men that he first encountered and then kicked in the head while he lay there by another young man. And um, Bob died as, as a result of the kicking um, of a massive brain hemorrhage. So about 20 minutes after he left the house and didn't return, uh, the police were on my doorstep, and I found myself standing in the emergency room of the local hospital watching friends who were police officers and a friend who was the doctor on call and the EMTs desperately trying to resuscitate Bob. And I really believe it was right then that I, I could see I was about to go on a journey. And while everyone else was desperately trying to do what they were trained to do as professionals, I had this profound sense that my job was to find a way to positively move forward because clearly things were were as bad as they could get. And I left Bob at the hospital um, after they told me that, that he was gone, and I went home to wait to tell my four-year-old twins that their father was dead. And after I told them, my son asked me for a bowl of Cheerios. <laughs> and I realized that I was going to have to put one foot in front of the other, um, not just once, but uh, repeatedly, and get breakfast on the table for them and give them everything they deserved to have as, as children, particularly um, a fully present and engaged parent because they had just lost one. I didn't want them to lose me in the process. So I promised them that our lives weren't going to be all about this and we were going to find some kind of gift. And I had no idea, to be honest, what that was going to be. And um, five years later, after we left the community, started again where I had grown up so that we could be closer to my family, um, the police went undercover. They stayed there for two and a half years. And that phone call finally came five years after Bob was killed to say that 
they were ready to make an arrest. And Katie, Mike, yes. Um, I please excuse me for interrupting. Yeah. Really, this, uh, but that five years, <laughs> that five years feels like the longest journey from my perspective and what I learned of your story. Um, could you tell us a bit more about that five years and and why I'm the, the difficulty for me was I, I felt as though I was sort of in a place of suspend, suspended animation. But I was also sharing a home with two, four just turning five-year-olds who over the course of those years went from five to ten. And if there's ever a time you need to be totally engaged in a child's life, it's during those years. So I, I put the other stuff, I put that uncertainty onto the back burner. And, so what, uh, what was happening with, uh, with the community and the kids themselves? Nothing was happening with the community and with the kids. They were doing their level best to, to bury the story and make it go away. I wasn't living there, so I don't know on a day-to-day basis what it was like, but of course I heard from people that I was close to in the community um, that, that, that people either weren't talking or were talking to the wrong people. And didn't that feel like it felt horrible? Insult? Yeah, it absolutely did. But I couldn't take that on. All I could take on was what was important for me at the time, which was trying to put as much normalcy into my children's life as I could. Mm-hmm. I couldn't take on the town. Mm-hmm. Right. Wow. What a strong woman, and and authentically so. It, it really feels like you you were able to walk with that in a very authentic way, which is incredible considering the circumstances. So, so when you got that call after five years, yes. Then what? When, when I got the call, I was basically informing the police that I was on my way. In other words, I was going to return back to that community because I wanted to meet the young man that they were arresting. And, and the police were like, whoa, Katie. You know, that, that's not the way it looks. That's not what an arrest in a homicide investigation looks like. You, you just can't show up and meet him. And I said, well, why not? <laughs> I have some questions to ask him. I need to understand what was going on in his life. I need him to understand what's been going on in mine and in the lives mm-hmm. of my children. And they were, of course, completely caught off guard, thought I was crazy, and quickly did some thinking and, and, and suggested maybe that what we would do is make a video of me having this conversation that I felt so compelled to have. And they would show him that video once he was arrested. So I figured it wasn't exactly what I was looking for, but it was a move in the right direction. So we did that. We made the video. And Ryan Aldridge, the young man that was ultimately charged um, in connection with Bob's murder, um, was shown that video. And after all that silence and all that costly, complex undercover investigating, he simply made a full confession. Mm-hmm. And then he wrote a letter of apology and said to the police that he wanted to hand it to me personally. So I, I do give the, you know, the RCMP, uh, the Canadian police, full credit for jumping outside of the box at that stage and saying, okay, this, this isn't looking like anything we've ever seen before, but we're going to go with it. And they sent a helicopter over to the island to get me, and 16 hours after Ryan was arrested, I sat in a windowless interrogation room and did a non-facilitated face-to-face meeting with Ryan. Wow. 
Wow. Can you describe that meeting? Um, gut-wrenching. I was so afraid. I really thought my heart was going to come out my mouth until the door opened and a young man that walked in could have been <laughs> my son, your son, anybody's kid, the boy next door. And I just, I, I, the, the chasm that I think we as society so we, so quickly put between ourselves and the people that cause harm, it just came snapping shut. And I looked at him and thought of stupid things I did in my youth mm-hmm. and how we're all capable of doing things that have horrific outcomes. wasn't diminishing the seriousness of what had happened to Bob, but I just, the humanity overwhelmed me. And he sat there crying, and I, you know, kept stuffing tissues into his hand. And mm-hmm. all I knew how to do was be there the way I would hope somebody would be for my own child. That's all I could do. Wow. It was hard. And to, it was so to, hard. To, to think, just I, I, it makes me think of of um, the extraordinary stories uh, that are. I mean, this seems surreal to me in a way because, of course, I wasn't there. But um, the your you know your ability to to hold that 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 space of empathy even even while you were in it um that i mean i would ask you is is empathy an important quality of restorative justice and of what we might call restorative justice i I think well empathy starts to you know walk in the direction of forgiveness and i'm very very cautious in talking about restorative justice or restorative practice and forgiveness in the same breath um, right. I'm 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 always so pleased when um the media talks about restorative in any way, shape or form and I know, I know recently there were some very high profile articles that sort of crossed that line and mm-hmm. and added to that confusion. So I'm I'm really right. quick to say we're talking about two very different things here. For me personally, empathy was a big part of my experience but there's mm-hmm. many, many people I encounter who have been family victims of violent crime where empathy is just not in the equation. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, no, there's no formula, there's no right way, there's no wrong way. Mm-hmm. It is what mm-hmm. it is for the person that's having the experience. For me, for Ryan, yes, there was an enormous amount of empathy. And in Ryan's case, once he got caught, and he's the first to say he, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't about to come forward, but when he did and he met the humanity on the other side of the experience, it became um, a place for him to find remorse and, and do the self-work that he needed to mm-hmm. do to crawl out of the hole that he was in. But had we not had that experience, had it just simply been an arrest and an incarceration, I think the trajectory of the story would have been very different for all of us. The, the point that you make... Um, about the intermingling of the word and the sense of forgiveness and restorative justice. I, I really appreciate you speaking about that because, um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's something that we've covered here on this show before with Azim Kamisa and yes. with Therese Bar- Bartholomew yes. and with many <laughs> others. And, of course, we've referred to the article that you I think we're referring to around the the Kate 
Gross Mare case, I believe, yeah, exactly. and um, and and the New York Times article that I believe That's the exactly headline the article was, I was thinking of. Yeah, right. And so it, I so appreciate that that what you're earmarking is that for restorative justice, at least from my perspective, what, what I believe you're saying, and I so support and believe as well is that. Um, you know, forgiveness can become something as a result of a process, but certainly restorative justice is not an uh, um, an end no. to a means to an end. No, there's no um, expectation. Where, right, right, no and that's something that that's something that I think comes up in you know conversations and uh, you know not just conversations, but actually political advocacy and a lot of actions that are being um, pushed forward in creating more systems around restorative justice that, okay. you know, that, that VAs are looking at um, restorative justice feeling very protective of, of victims. Yes, exactly. And so how do you, given that you have such this deep wealth um, of experience, in the role of an impacted party um, of, uh, to the highest degree, how would you recommend um, people go about understanding that restorative justice is not about forcing anything, but that, is actually, that actually carries the impacted party's interests um, very first much at hand? Are there better ways that we can be handling this this part of the conversation? Because it's a critical part, don't you think? Oh, it is. But I think I think the the experience that is probably more universal and easier to talk about as a as an entry point is the powerlessness and the lack of voice that a victim feels. From the get go, it's taken away from them when the case becomes a matter of a law that was broken, and a justice system's quest to determine who broke the law and what the punishment will be, and the victim is left out of the process. The very crime might have involved powerlessness and, and taking away somebody's voice. So for me, you don't even need to get into the conversation around empathy or forgiveness. The conversation when I'm speaking to people who are considering engaging in the process is you will have an opportunity to have your voice and not in a... Um, victim impact statement uh, edited by um, you know, an attorney presented in a particular format in a courtroom facing this wall, not that wall, and don't have eye contact with you know, the, the family of the offender on the other side of the room. There's, there's so many um, parameters that are put around the justice experience traditionally in, the, in that conventional process that all those things that um, hurt can be addressed in the restorative um, experience. So we don't even go to the place necessarily of empathy mm -hmm. or forgiveness. It's, it's mm -hmm. about what do I need to heal and I need to feel like, you know, frankly, I needed to feel like I was driving the bus again because everything had been taken away from me. In the mm -hmm. shape of my life, every part of it, you know, financially, who my friends were, where I did my grocery shopping, um, what I could stomach to watch on television, um, my hypersensitivity walking down the street, like every part of my world was rocked by Bob's murder. And mm -hmm. the only place 
that I found healing was in that very careful walk and dance that I did with Ryan. That's the only place I found any uh, mm-hmm. movement forward. The rest of it, the justice part, I I stood by and watched with respect and reverence because they had you know put food on my table throughout my marriage, and you know continues to because you know once again I've uh, you know married into a legal family, but um, it was the restorative piece. It was the hard personal work that that took place off the radar of the conventional system that was mm-hmm. so important, and, and that's that's what I share when I'm speaking to either a family victim or um, an offender who is wondering what it's going to feel like. Mm. Well, I'd, li- I'd like to just take a brief station break here. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for being here with us tonight. Uh, again, this is Restorative Justice on the Rise, and we're speaking with Katie Hutchison. I'd like to just underscore the book that she's written. It's called Walking After Midnight, One Woman's Journey Through Murder, Justice, and Forgiveness, and it's published by New Harbinger Publications. It's also available as a Kindle or ebook on Amazon, which is where I found it. And again, the movie I mentioned earlier at the opening of our show tonight is called Bond of Silence, and that's a Lifetime Network movie, which is also available on Amazon Instant Video. Um, Katie's TED Talk. The TEDx Talk West Vancouver has received over 25,000 views, and um, just some extraordinary work that you've been doing in the past 16 years, and maybe we could, could talk about that in a moment, Katie, a little sure. bit more ground level, but... I'd also like to remind everyone who's here with us tonight live, if you have a question for this second segment of our dialogue tonight with Katie and you'd like to ask it to her live or make a comment, please press 1 on your telephone keypad for the remainder of our time together. So that's just pressing 1 on your telephone keypad. And it will alert us that you would like to make a comment or ask a question. So Katie, let, let's talk about what, what you've done over the years um, uh, and how, you know, where the journey has taken you in service due to this profound experience that you've had. I know, I know at some point you and Ryan had done some things together and of course you've done a lot of other incredible educating, speaking, um, but, but tell us more about what you've seen and, and what you've offered. I think um, once Ryan was incarcerated and I had made a pact with him that I was going to stand behind him through that process of rehabilitation and and try and and be as engaged as I could in that end of the system, it felt as though um, there were a collection of teachable moments in what we had experienced. And I was turning around in my mind what that was going to look like. I, you know, I thought about writing and, and really felt that I was more of a talker than a writer. So I, I actually called the high school I had gone to and said, you know, I know we do a good job in our schools talking about very specific scenarios like date rape or drinking and driving, but we don't talk in broader terms about the devastation that can happen when large numbers of kids gather and there's a layer of alcohol and other drugs, the sort of collateral damage to families and communities. So I just wondered if sharing my story would be helpful, and, and of course the school counselors were all over it. 
And the next time that I met with Ryan, I said, you know, what do you think about developing something? And would you consider, you know, working with me when you get out of jail? And he was very keen. So I developed um, a presentation for young people. And when he got out on parole and was living in a halfway house, he would come and work with me. And we spoke to, oh, tens of thousands of young people in schools and alternative programs and youth detention facilities and at conferences. And then he did exactly what I was hoping he would do, which was move moved forward You know, once he had finished with his um, parole and um, moved back to his community. He you know, got a great job and, and started paying his taxes and met somebody and just recently started a family. And while we stay in touch, it's at a very respectful, careful distance. And um, we don't speak publicly together anymore, but um, he certainly has continued to support the sharing of the story, um, particularly on um, great platforms like the Forgiveness Project out of the UK. So then I've just continued on, and, and I've done a lot of work at the justice end of things with um, incarcerated adults and juveniles, um, obviously lots of work in the um, justice sector and, and working with service providers. But really my favorite area to talk about restorative practices with children. So the more and more um, I move along on the journey, the, the younger my audiences seem to get. And I, you know, I'm now developing training for, for schools, working with children, just developing their circle practice and trying to incorporate a creative element into that because I think we, we expand our conversation and shift our lenses easily when we're engaged together in creative activity. So with a colleague, Shannon Maroney out of Toronto, we're playing with some innovative um, customized training for, for schools and organizations. Um, I've been privileged to do work in northern Canada and some First Nations communities and been of course inspired by the, the root of this practice in the um, Aboriginal communities, also in the Aboriginal communities of New Zealand and Australia where I've had the privilege of doing a fair amount of work. Uh, so it's taken me everywhere to um, huge places and to tiny places and uh, I've met incredible inspired mentors all along the way. But the more and more I do the work, the more I believe that if we raise a generation of young people who expect a restorative opportunity to be the way they resolve conflict at their dinner tables and in the playgrounds, and mm -hmm. uh, if they happen to uh, connect with the justice system there as well, that when they come out and become parents and become um, employees, that, that they will carry that default expectation with them, that that is how we um, deal, with, deal with conflict, by asking the restorative questions, by addressing the needs of people on all sides, 360 degrees around the harm. I, I just so appreciate, and I'm sure everyone here tonight could agree, uh, just the, the depth of experience internationally that you've had in sharing wisdom and being present for, for various wisdoms and traditions and everything that you've done to offer your own experience as well in that way. And I'm wondering, Katie, in what you've seen um, and knowing it seems like many traditions, say from like New, New Zealand and sometimes we refer to the Gachacha over in Rwanda, um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and, and so on and so forth, there's some living examples in our world of 
what might be called restorative justice. And Absolutely. storytelling um, and the qualities of storytelling that might lead to a better understanding, which then might lead to what you were so heartfeltly describing earlier about your experience with Ryan initially. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, about storytelling and being, being heard and, and really listening? What well, part does that play in all of this? It, well, for me, it, it's 100% of my work because I'm not, um, I mean, I've done facilitator training after the fact. I've, you know, I've done lots of, um, for my own interest, I've expanded my knowledge of restorative practices, but because I came at this with my story and nothing else, that is where I stand and that is where I um, bring other people into the conversation is simply by sharing my story. You know, so often I'll find myself um, speaking at an event with you know, somebody like Howard Zare or, or Lauren Abramson and, and I, I'm so humbled by their depth of knowledge and practice and, and all I can do is share my story. But every time what happens is I watch, whether it's two people listening to it or a thousand people listening to it, I can see the wheels turning on the outside of their heads as they true up some of their own experiences and start to consider looking at their own lives that way and, you know, what if? I mean, I, mm-hmm. what if Ryan, when his parents split up when he was in grade five and he was feeling that horrible pull between two different um, homes, you know, what if when he was being bullied in school, he had had an opportunity to sit down in circle with his teacher and his principal and his parents and some of the other children that were involved and their families? What if? Things could have looked so different. So all I can do is take a, a personal story and lay it out for people to consider their own stories, their own communities. This kind of situation mm. happens. I mean, people, people lose their lives senselessly every day. It's the conversation that we have afterwards and, and bringing people to that place of believing that um, creating a safe space to have a difficult conversation is sometimes the best we can do. Hmm. How do you think we're doing collectively um, within this field and, and maybe generally in, in um, our common humanity around what appear to be primal elements of what we've just been discussing, um, meaning we have equal respect and regard for no matter who you are in the situation at hand, um, in the crime or conflict, you, whether you're the impacted party or the cause of it, um, what what are the what are the qualities that are at the root of the process that if we can get get close to those, um, the, you know that storytelling evokes. Um, what do you think those might be? What are those? Well, the, the challenge is, you know, you're, you're standing at a cocktail party and, and no one ever has a hard time chit-chatting about education or health care. 
and I don't think it matters whether you're in the United States or whether you're in Canada. Those are you know, okay. two pretty simple conversations to jump into and, and get an opinion on. But as soon as you start talking about criminal justice, people, I, you know, I, I watch this all the time, people will just kind of politely shy away from you and all of a sudden feel the need to refill their drink or, or go find the canapes because people really don't want to talk about it whether they're afraid that um, it's contagious or they have, um, you know, a nephew who's incarcerated or uh, what, whatever their reasons are, we need to take the stigma away. The way we're working hard to destigmatize the conversation about mental illness, we need to destigmatize the conversation about criminal justice because we pour an extraordinary amount of resources in North America into keeping people in prison and very little money into figuring out what we're going to do when they get out, mm-hmm. right? And I think if we took just, you know, a fraction of that money and put it into programming that gave some base level of restorative opportunity across the board, we would be moving ourselves in a better direction. In the 15 years that I've been talking about this, I've seen a huge shift. Communities where, yes, you know, there's great organizations. People are aware of it. Schools are making referrals. Um, people are volunteering. I'll go two states over, and it's as though they've never heard of it. Mm-hmm. So it's it's so hit and miss. It's so um, spotty across the board. That's what worries me because I'll you know I'll even go back to places where it seemed like they had a very entrenched focus around restorative practice, and then the wind has changed and. Perhaps the government mm-hmm. has changed or people have left and all of a sudden they're back to square one again. And they're looking at things through a very punitive lens once again. So it's, it's again, I think it is in educating young people who will not forget <laughs> because it will be so grounded in their culture and in their expectation mm-hmm. that they'll carry it with them. Mm-hmm. That that seems like uh, what could be described um, working with people upstream of conflict. <laughs> um, That's right. Given, given that conflict happens in all of our lives almost on a daily basis for all of us um, right. to whatever extreme, um, why, why not implement systems where we're working upstream of conflict as well as addressing it when it does happen, of course, in a, in a more restorative way? And I know um, tonight I just want to honor the work of a couple people who are on live with us tonight um, that I, I know particularly a bit about their work, and I know that they're doing work upstream of conflict. So it's a good time to just say thank you to the River Phoenix Center for Peacebuilding, which is located in Florida, but their impact is much beyond that state. Um, that's the River Phoenix Center for Peacebuilding and Heart Phoenix, Jeffrey Weisberg, and a great team of people are doing incredible work in that community and, like I said, much beyond. Um, and um, I think, let's see, more about the, the River Phoenix Center would be at, I believe it's RPCP, um, but I have to go back and look. You can Google it. It's easy to find. So thank you, Heart Phoenix, for being on with us tonight. And I uh, also want to acknowledge Andrea Brennicki from the mayor's office up in Seattle, who's on with us tonight and doing some great um, way showing work with the mayor's office up in Seattle. If, if there's anybody on here tonight from that area in particular, please know that, that your mayor's office 
is doing some great work to forward restorative justice in that system. So, um, so speaking of upstream conflict, uh, of conflict, Katie, you had mentioned earlier that you're doing something pretty extraordinary in working with children. And I'm just wondering if, there, if you could share a little bit more with us about that process, or is it still kind of in development? No, we're, I mean, Shannon and I um, have, have been out there doing some training. I'll, I'll just share a story about one school that we worked with in Waterloo, Ontario, um, 450 students. Five, I'm going to say, maybe six. And the principal had done some restorative training and said, well, it's, you know, it's no good having me being trained. We need the community to be trained. So we love the idea of a whole school approach. We wanted to include parents as well. So we designed a two-part um, training program. And we went in in the fall and did the first part where we sent a toolkit to the parents saying, you know, we're going to be meeting with your kids. This is um, some of the things that um, they may be talking about when they come home. And uh, we spent an evening working with the teachers and giving them some fundamental um, uh, core value work around circle practice. And then we spent two days workshopping with the children. And I, um, of course, because I'm from the West Coast, I think that everybody should have a driftwood talking piece. So I hauled <laughs> 450 small pieces of driftwood across the country in my carry-on luggage. And the teachers were just, they, they were shaking their heads as we said we were going to somehow manage to get 150 children. And in some of the groups, those children were ranging in ages from four through nine, um, quietly sitting in a circle in the gym, passing a talking piece, and, <laughs> right. and offering some suggestions on how to resolve a playground scenario that we had thrown at them, a, a conflict scenario that they might encounter in the playground. And in all three of the workshops, we were completely successful in getting these kids to sit in circle and wait um, as the talking piece was passed and to offer um, ideas on, on how to make things better. Incredible. I think children, yes, children teach us. Children teach us yes. how to teach them. And the, the, the shoulders relaxing with the teachers as they sat in a circle with a mixed group of children that weren't necessarily even from their own classes. And they didn't have to worry. They didn't have to do the work that they have to do in the, in the classroom to, to maintain order because the circle took care of it for them. It was just, it was so transformative. By the time we got home, we had emails from parents who said that their kids got into the car after school, you know, clutching these dripping wet, painty pieces of driftwood and, and announcing that you know, they were going to have a circle at the dining room table when they got home to deal with <laughs> how to allocate time on their Xbox. <laughs> it was great. So, so we, we, we try to make it. Um, Shannon, um, who I work with, is the parent of two-and-a-half-year-old twins, and I'm the parent of 21-year-old twins, um, plus a couple of stepkids. So we figure we've got some pretty interesting um, parent perspectives in our tool belts, and we like to bring that in, and Shannon's also a school teacher, so we, we bring that mm -hmm. into the room with us and just talk about, you know, what does it mean to be a peace builder? What does it mean to, to build community with children? And I think that there's just enormous possibility there. I think um, the idea that restorative practice is kind of wishy-washy and a cop-out and, you know, <laughs> I mean, we get called everything, right? Um, it's strong, powerful work. 
Kumbaya. <laughs> yeah, kumbaya, totally. Everybody oh my gosh. get together and hug. And yeah, and yeah, 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 yeah. Group hug. It's just, it's so not like that. Like, it's the hardest work you can do. And right. children see that. They see it as hard work. It's great. Oh, that's so great. They're proud and of it. Katie, is this something that people can find out more about um, if they're in your area or even if they'd like to hop on a plane and come and do some training with you? Is well, they can hop on our website, on and, website and get in touch with us, and we'll, we'll come visit them. <laughs> okay, Shannon's so in Toronto, and I'm in, in British Columbia. So we, we, yeah, we go all over the place. And, and We're working Katie um, in presents. Yeah, com. If you Thanks. Google me, you'll, you'll, you'll find me <laughs> easily. Great. So uh, just in, in this great conversation about a little bit more ground level with schools, what are you? What are the other things that you see um, restorative practices helping with, as far as um, teachers' time? They're they're such amazing people. They're so devoted to our our children, oh, and you know administrators and and all of these people that are gathering around to support our babies. And yet, you know, the intensity level has just amped up off the Absolutely. hook. Around the this field, so what what are how do you speak with folks who might say, "Well, I don't really have enough time for this." You know, I'm right. already and dealing with so much. That's the what thing. Do you I say? mean, you know, let let let's take a, a middle school science teacher, you know, whose eyes are going to roll back in their head when you say, "Okay, on top of getting through the science curriculum, I want you to take charge of the social emotional learning of my child." <laughs> like, really? And by you know budgets have been cut, and you've got you know four more special needs kids in your classroom. Like we get it, Shannon and I get the pressures that are put on teachers. So what the the angle that we come at it from is if you have a circle up and running in your classroom, it is going to take care of all that wasted time that you're spending while you're trying to deliver your curriculum, and kids are really focused on what's going on, what they're present to in their lives, what they've carried with them into school. That's all going to get dealt with in circle. And so learning time will become learning time. And when there is a problem that is going to take you away from your curriculum and you're going to have to deal with discipline issues or referring um, a child to a principal or, a, or an administrator and fill out the, you know, the appropriate paperwork, that instead that many times rather than escalating to that place, that conflict is going to resolve itself in the organic process of being in circle in the classroom. So with Shannon and I, when we, when we do training, we, you know, we start out talking about the idea of um, you know, regular meetings in circle, whether it's just a check-in on a Monday morning, letting the kids get all that weekend stuff on the table, out the door, get it out there and then get on with learning or teaching in circle. Quite often it's a really practical way to do um, literature work or, or you know, even teaching hard sciences. And then when the circle is needed to deal with the tough stuff, it's already in place. The kids are already eager to be in that place. You create that dynamic in the classroom. So it evolves through practice, and if you start it with kids at a young age, then it just becomes their expectation that, yeah, that, that is how we gather at regular intervals, whether it's a daily thing, whether you can actually teach a lesson that way. But instead of teachers viewing it as, oh, no, it's another, another thing that we have to do on top of our already packed schedule, it, it's a way of being. 
it's a way of coexisting in community in the classroom. Mm. Well, I just want to just uh, again remind everyone that you can find out more about Katie at the website that we just mentioned, um, katiehutchisonpresents.com. That includes her workshops, her books, her TEDx talk, and everything, and um, even more about Katie that you probably might like to know. So make sure you <laughs> check out <laughs> katiehutchisonpresents.com and of course the TEDx talk and the wonderful book. And um, Katie, I just want to say it's been a wonderful pleasure to be with you here tonight. And as we're moving into closing, comments tonight. Um, just wonder what else would you like to cover that, that we haven't gotten to yet tonight in the dialogue? In closing. I think the people that are so often um, left behind are the families of offenders and the community that um, may not stand as united behind that offender as perhaps does behind a family victim or a victim. And for me, when I was going through this, the one person I felt that often probably was the only person on the face of this earth could, that could relate to how I was feeling at a given time was Ryan's mother. And reaching out to her and having that connection carried me wow. through some of the biggest peaks and valleys of this experience. And it's that... Um, place of not pushing away um, the people that are coming along when when we meet restoratively, and how powerful the experience of connecting in places that you never thought you'd make connections can be. Wow! So it's not That's just that. two people; it's families, it's extended families, it's neighbors, it's you know when these things happen in our community, they happen in our community to all of us. I felt who better than me to care deeply about what happened to Ryan and his mother and his cousin mm -hmm. and babies in that family that aren't even born yet. You know, I really don't it. tell this story for myself. I tell it for people that haven't been here yet. Mm-hmm. Right. I've never heard anybody speak quite so eloquently, though, to that aspect of it, and certainly it strikes a chord for me in being the daughter of what we call an offender and knowing how it feels to be um, not necessarily intentionally left out, because I'm sure a lot of people cared and wondered over all the years, but certainly you know, in the media and in the stipulations of our, our law, are um, things in place that, that really prevent us from doing what you're describing. Um, and I just, I have so much hope for um, what's coming ahead and what, what we're developing all of us together in, in this field because it does answer to those needs very, very poignantly and also on a case-to-case -case basis. So it helps us to feel safe, right? Absolutely. When, when Ryan was, um, no, before even Ryan was arrested, right after Bob was killed and we were still very directly involved in the police investigation and my children were, had just turned five, 
my kids wanted to know what was going to happen to the person when they were arrested, and they were very worried. They were very worried about their safety and their welfare. And a police officer actually took us to the little tiny police station and showed us the cell that they would be put in and where the food that they were going to eat was kept in the freezer. And it really mattered to my kids to know that the person was going to be okay. And I thought that was very telling. Where do we lose that? Where do we lose that across the board, not drawing lines, caring for Mm -hmm. everyone? Mm. Somebody said that, and I'm not sure who the quote belongs to, but the line between good and evil does not run between people, it runs within each of our own hearts. And I believe that to be very true. You know, Katie, it, it, it makes me think, too, of the, of the story of the African tribe where um, I know many of us here probably know this story, and I'm not going to retell it in full, but it's about the, the understanding that each person has a song. And yeah. even be, before they're born, the community comes together and learns the song together. And so then they know when that child is born, they know their song. And so when anybody in the community causes uh, harm, their song is sung back to them. And I just, I, that ties in so beautifully with what you're conveying around, you know, how can we retain the understanding that everyone does have a song, that everyone has a place in this dance we call life, and that everyone ha- has humanity just like us. Um, exactly. There's nothing I could do that was going to bring Bob back. But what a legacy for Ryan to create something amazing with his own life. And what a legacy for you to be working with our children um, in helping to support what probably they already know. And we're like, well, wait a minute, nobody's doing this with us. And, right. and now here's Katie and Shannon. <laughs> <laughs> Bringing the driftwood pieces and yeah, so well, Katie, I have to say I'm just so honored again and um, grateful for your time tonight with us here on Restorative Justice on the Rise and really honoring of all of the people calling in from wherever you've come from tonight, um, all over the United States and some from Canada, and just encouraging you to keep up the great work. And to tune in again here with us at Restorative Justice on the Rise. And one more time, a great thank you to the River Phoenix Center for Peace Building in Florida, to Full Circle Restorative Justice, uh, also with a representative on with us tonight from Colorado, and the Mayor's Office of Seattle, Andrea Brennicki. So My neighbor. Um, <laughs> So, Katie, again, it's been a pleasure and an honor, and thank you all. Have a great night, and until next time, I'm your host, Molly Rowan Leach. This has been Restorative Justice on the Rise. Good night, all. Good night.